To get this episode of Forensic Tales ad-free, check us out at patreon.com slash Forensic Tales. Forensic Tales discusses topics that some listeners may find disturbing. The contents of this episode may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. Nikki grew up, like most little girls, dreaming about her wedding day. She imagined her new wonderful life. Then one day, her Prince Charming returned. High school sweethearts reunited by destiny. Only three weeks until the magical day. A day that would never come. This is Forensic Tales, episode number 107, The Nikki McCown Story. Welcome to Forensic Tales. I'm your host, Courtney Fretwell Ariola. Forensic Tales is a weekly true crime podcast covering real, spine tingling stories with a forensic science twist. Some cases have been solved with forensic science, while others have turned cold. Every remarkable story sends us a chilling reminder that not all stories have happy endings. Sharing true crime stories isn't just about the story themselves. It's about getting justice for the victims and their families. True crime helps hold criminals accountable so they can't continue to cause us harm. As a one-woman show, your support helps me find new exciting cases, conduct in-depth fact-based research, produce and edit this weekly show. And for supporting the show, You'll get early access to ad-free episodes, exclusive merchandise not available anywhere else, bonus content, shout-outs and episodes, and priority on case suggestions. This week, we have a few new supporters of the show, Barb M. and Karen D. Thank you so much, Barb and Karen. To learn more about supporting Forensic Tales, consider visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash Forensic Tales or by simply clicking the support link in the show notes. You can also help support the show by leaving a positive rating with a review. Now, let's jump right into this week's case. Hey everyone, Courtney here. Just a quick reminder before we get into this week's episode, if you're listening to us on Spotify right now, please consider taking two seconds out of your day and leave Forensic Tales a positive rating. A couple weeks ago, Spotify finally enabled its podcast rating feature. So if you love this show and you listen to us on Spotify, please leave us a positive one. So our story is going to take us to Sunday, July 22nd, 2001. July 22nd was a hot and muggy day in Richmond, Indiana. 28-year-old Nikki McCown started her day by going to church with her fiancé, Bobby Webster, just like they did every Sunday morning. After church together, the couple had plans to run a few errands for their upcoming wedding. They were only three weeks away from their dream wedding. This was an exciting time for Nikki. She was just about to marry her perfect man in a fairy tale wedding. Nikki's life looked amazing. Nikki and her fiancé, Bobby, started dating in high school. They were high school sweethearts. 
But after high school graduation, Bobby decided that he didn't want to stay in Richmond, Indiana. So he moved out to California in 1991. Bobby's move out west devastated Nikki. That type of distance wouldn't allow them to be boyfriend and girlfriend anymore. But after a few weeks of heartache, Nikki seemed to move on and started dating other people. And when she turned 19 years old, Nikki gave birth to a baby girl she named Peyton. After her daughter was born, Nikki worked for a correctional center in Dayton, Ohio in 1994. She got her foot in the door by working as a guard, but quickly worked her way up to head accountant. While working at the correctional center, Nikki took classes in criminal justice at the local community college. She told her family and friends that she had goals of becoming an FBI agent. In 1998, Bobby Webster, Nikki's former high school sweetheart, moved back to Richmond, Indiana. As soon as he arrived, Nikki and he rekindled their relationship. But this time was different. Long gone were the high school sweetheart days. Both were well into their 20s. Nikki was a single mother, and they both wanted the same thing in life, a serious relationship. Nikki and Bobby got engaged, and Nikki couldn't be happier. Again, this was the man of her dreams. She thought she was going to marry him back in high school, and now they're back together. Everything just seemed right in the world. That's why no one could understand what happened on Sunday, July 22nd, 2001. Around 12 o'clock noon, Nikki and Bobby got home from church. The plan was for Bobby to go out with his cousin Billy to the mall in order to get their tuxes fitted for the wedding. At the same time, Nikki wanted to go to the laundromat to get some laundry done. She figured if Bobby was going to be at the mall with his cousin, this was a great time to check off laundry from her long list of things to do. The plan that afternoon was for Nikki and Bobby to get these errands done and then meet up back at the house around 4 or 5 p.m. that evening so that they could work on the wedding invitations. Shortly before noon, Nikki took Bobby's car and dropped off her nine-year-old daughter Peyton off at her parents' house so that they could babysit her while Nikki went to do laundry. After dropping Peyton off, she drove to the laundromat. A little while later, Nikki returned to her parents' home, but she seemed angry. She's annoyed about something when Nikki's mom asked her, hey, what's going on? Nikki told her that these two guys were bugging her while she was doing laundry. They just wouldn't leave her alone. Nikki's mom just chalked it up to her daughter being a young, pretty girl and was just being bothered and harassed by these two stupid young guys. But Nikki seemed to be really bothered about them. So Nikki's mom tells her, look, go back to the laundromat, get your clothes out of the dryer, and then just bring them back here. You can finish drying your clothes in my dryer. No big deal. But Nikki refuses. She says, yeah, these two guys are annoying me. They're harassing me, but I'm fine. I'll just go back, finish drying the clothes, and get out of there. So around 4.30 p.m., Bobby returned home from the tuck store with his cousin. When he walked through the front door, he expected to see Nikki there. But right away, he didn't see her shoes at the front door. She wasn't home from the laundromat. At first, he's not bothered. He thought maybe it was taking longer than usual, or maybe she went somewhere else afterwards. 
But when two hours went by and still no word from his fiance, he started to get a little worried. By 6.30 p.m., he started calling Nikki's sisters and parents, but no one's heard from her. Nikki's mom said that the last time she saw her daughter was earlier that afternoon when she came over and complained about the two men harassing her. But she said she left and said that she was headed back to the laundromat. Nikki's fiance and family grew more worried when she never returned to pick up her daughter, Peyton. Now, this was completely out of character for Nikki. She just wouldn't drop her daughter off at her parents and then not remember to pick her up later on. So by nighttime, the family decided that it was time to start looking for her. They looked into Nikki's apartment and found all of her belongings. They found her purse, her ID, all of her clothes. They didn't find anything inside the apartment that suggested she planned to be gone for a long time or much longer than just doing laundry. Her family and fiancé started to think that maybe she'd been in a car accident. They knew she was at the laundromat, but they also knew that she often made the 40-mile drive out to Dayton, Ohio. Remember, Dayton, Ohio was where her job was located. So they decided to hop in a few cars and make the drive out to Dayton, thinking they might spot her along the side of the road or spot if she had been in some sort of car accident. But when they drove out to Dayton, they don't see anything. They don't find any sign of Nikki. So they went back to Richmond. Still, nothing. No sign of Nikki anywhere. By 8 a.m. the following day, the family still hadn't heard from Nikki. So they decided to call the Richmond Police Department to report her missing. This just isn't like Nikki at all. Not only did she fail to pick up her daughter and fail to come home that night, She also failed to report to work at the correctional center. In all of her time there, she had never missed a single day of work. Now, initially, the police in Richmond aren't too concerned about Nikki's disappearance. She's a 28-year-old adult and hasn't been even 24 hours since she's been missing. But Nikki's family knew that something was wrong. So instead of waiting for the police... They obtained surveillance video taken at a deli store across the street from the laundromat. They wanted to see if they could find any footage of Nikki. And they did. The surveillance footage showed Nikki coming into the deli store that afternoon and buying what looked like a soda. No one was with her. Everything seemed fine. Nikki didn't look upset or she didn't look like she was in any type of trouble And then after buying the soda, she just simply walked out of the deli store and headed towards the laundromat. Again, as she leaves the store, no one is following her. She's acting completely normal. So although the surveillance tape captured Nikki that afternoon, it didn't provide any evidence about what happened. The family then went back to the police to tell them about the two men harassing Nikki. A few officers went to go speak with people who were there at the laundromat, but nothing came of it. No one saw or heard anything suspicious or out of the ordinary. And no one saw the two men that Nikki complained about. When Nikki still didn't come home that afternoon, the police thought that maybe she got cold feet about her upcoming wedding. This, of course, wouldn't be the first time or the first case of a runaway bride. 
But Nikki's family didn't believe that she would just run away. Even if she didn't want to marry Bobby, she would never, ever leave her daughter behind. That just didn't make any sense. Plus, everyone who knew Nikki knew how badly she wanted to have this dream fairy tale wedding. After spending all of this money and all of this time planning it, she would never just up and leave. Richmond police and Nikki's family began putting up missing person flyers around town and knocking on doors, hoping to find anyone who might know where Nikki was. But everything was a dead end. No one had seen or heard anything, not even anyone at the laundromat. The police also organized helicopter searches of the area, hoping to find Nikki's car, but again, nothing turned up. So the police turned their attention to classic suspect number one, the fiancé, Bobby Webster. Richmond police became suspicious of Bobby after observing some pretty weird behavior following Nikki's disappearance. They learned that only one day, one single day after she went missing, he called up the community college where she was taking classes and asked about collecting her unused tuition money. Unfortunately for him, the community college told him that there wasn't any unused tuition money because her employer, the correctional center, paid for her tuition. But that's not all the Richmond police find strange. They also learned that he went to the jewelry store the next day and tried to return his and Nikki's wedding bands. Now, This is merely two days after his fiance goes missing. He's going to the store and trying to get his money back on the wedding rings. You don't know if she's not coming back. Well, of course, you don't know that unless you had something to do with her disappearance. But Bobby Webster doesn't stop there. On top of getting her tuition refund and trying to return the wedding bands, He called up the wedding venue and asked that the wedding be canceled, not postponed to a later date until they could find Nikki. He wanted it completely canceled. And he wanted their full deposit back. Because there was never going to be a wedding. Again, this is all happening. The tuition, the return of the wedding bands, the canceling of the wedding. This is all just happening two days 48 hours after Nikki's disappearance. In fact, I don't even think it had been 48 hours yet. And you've got this guy, Bobby Webster, the fiance, acting like he already knows that no one's going to find her. Richmond police reached out to Bobby and asked him to come down to the station and take a polygraph. They wanted to find out if Bobby was telling the truth about Nikki's disappearance. At first, Bobby's reluctant. He doesn't want to come down to the station, and he doesn't want to take a polygraph test. But eventually, with some persuasion, he agreed and sat down for the test. When detectives asked him if he had anything, anything at all to do with Nikki's disappearance, he said no, N-O. And the second he said no, the needle jumped off the chart, indicating complete and utter deception. In the end, he failed the polygraph. But just because someone fails a polygraph test doesn't make them a murderer. And without any other solid evidence, 
there isn't much the Richmond police can do, really. Sure, the fiancé looked like a good suspect, but they didn't have anything else besides a failed polygraph test. If Bobby Webster had anything at all to do with Nikki's disappearance, he wasn't saying. Hey, Forensic Tales listeners, Courtney here. Do you hate listening to ads? Well, you can listen to every single episode of this show ad-free through Patreon, starting for just $3 a month. And what's great? You don't have to change how you listen. You can still enjoy ad-free episodes of Forensic Tales through most podcast apps. As a patron, you'll also get other great perks, like weekly bonus episodes. This is where I give you my reaction to each week's story that I don't share in regular episodes. But more importantly, your support means I can continue to deliver high-quality weekly true crime stories. Don't forget, Forensic Tales is just a one-woman show. If you're interested in learning more, go to patreon.com slash Forensic Tales. That's patreon.com slash Forensic Tales. There's also a link in the show notes. Now, back to the episode. Nikki's fiance, Bobby Webster, completely denied involvement in her disappearance. Yes, his behavior in the days following was strange, like calling up the community college to try and get her unused tuition money and, of course, canceling that wedding. But strange behavior doesn't necessarily make him a murderer or a kidnapper. So the Richmond Police Department kept searching for answers or any clues as to where Nikki might be. But nothing turned up. As quickly as a lead came in, it dried up. Days turned into weeks, then weeks turned into months without any solid suspects or clues into Nikki's disappearance. It was like she went to the laundromat, then completely disappeared. There was no sign of her or her car. Because of the lack of progress in the case, Nikki's family and close friends became frustrated with the Richmond Police Department. They couldn't believe that Nikki could just vanish into thin air and for the police not to have any suspects or breaks in the investigation. The family also shut out Bobby, Nikki's fiancé, out of the picture. They didn't necessarily think that he had anything to do with her disappearance, but they didn't want him around. As the weeks went by into the search, the further Nikki's family pushed him away. Nikki's case was on the brink of turning cold when the Richmond police received a promising tip three and a half months after her disappearance. On November 3rd, 2001, Richmond police received a phone call that Nikki's SUV was found parked in an apartment complex in Dayton, Ohio, some 40 miles away. Detectives immediately hopped into their cars and drove out to the apartment complex. And when they got there, they found Nikki's SUV parked in one of the apartment complex's parking spots. It was obvious that the vehicle had been there for a while, probably since Nikki's disappearance three and a half months earlier. When detectives looked around and inside the car, one of the first things they noticed was that Nikki's laundry was still inside. In the back seat of the car, the police found her neatly folded laundry still inside a laundry basket, like she had just finished doing her laundry that day, 
folded it inside of laundry basket, and then stuck it in the back of her car. Now, this discovery was huge for the investigation, not only because the police finally found Nikki's car, but because it meant that Nikki finished her laundry that day at the laundromat. If someone kidnapped her, they didn't do it inside the laundromat. Richmond police towed the SUV back to Indiana and tested it for forensic evidence. They searched for any clues that might help them figure out where Nikki was. They dusted it for fingerprints. They looked for hair, fibers, blood evidence, anything. But when investigators processed the car, they didn't find anything. Not a drop of blood, not a single piece of trace evidence, nothing. It was like the vehicle was wiped completely clean. Investigators also didn't find any signs of a break-in. The car's windows were fine. The locks were all in place. It seemed like whoever drove the car simply parked it and walked away. Nikki's SUV might not have given investigators any forensic evidence, but the car's location did. The police learned that the apartment complex where someone parked the car was only one-fourth of a mile away from a guy named Tommy Swint. Okay, but who's Tommy Swint? Tommy is from Trotwood, Ohio, and worked with Nikki at the Correctional Center. They were both guards together. But their relationship, Tommy Swint and Nikki, their relationship isn't exactly clear. Richmond investigators learned that there may have been something a little more happening than just co-workers. Were they friends? Were they something more between them? Did they have a little romance? Now, the only two people who can answer that question are Nikki and Tommy. But the police also learned that Tommy had a violent history. A couple of years before Nikki's disappearance, Nikki's sister went over to Nikki's apartment, and when she got there, she said that she saw Tommy on top of Nikki and that Nikki was screaming rape. But it's not only Tommy's violent history that intrigues police. They also discovered that he might have been obsessed with Nikki, an obsession that caught the attention of Nikki's family at her bridal shower. So at Nikki's bridal shower, she received a gift from Tommy Swint. And that gift was lingerie. According to Nikki's sisters, Nikki and Tommy were never romantic. They think that Tommy wanted to be with Nikki and he wanted to be more than friends, but Nikki didn't. Now, whatever their relationship was or wasn't, the police wanted to speak with Tommy and find out what he might know about her disappearance or why her car was parked only a quarter mile away from his apartment. But when detectives reached out to him, he wanted nothing to do with them. He had no idea where Nikki was or why someone parked her car in Dayton. So when investigators asked him to come down to Richmond to help with the investigation, he said no. He said he wouldn't do it. Without any evidence in the case, the Richmond police's hands are tied. Of course they wanted to speak with him, but they couldn't force him to do anything. 
So just like with Nikki's fiance, Bobby Webster, if he had anything to do with Nikki's disappearance, he wasn't saying either. Even with two persons of interest in the case, Bobby Webster and Tommy Swint, the case went back to being cold. The Richmond police were no closer at figuring out what happened to Nikki. By November 2002, Nikki had been missing for over a year. There was no activity on her bank accounts, and no one had seen or heard from her. Then on November 5th, 2002, Nikki's sisters decided to travel to New York to talk about the case on a TV talk show. The family knew that keeping Nikki's case in the public eye was important. The more people out there looking for her, the better. On the TV show, a psychic named Sylvia Brown told the family that she believed Nikki had been murdered and that her body had been dumped in a trench somewhere around the laundromat. After the show, the family picked up the phone and called the Richmond police, and they told them all about how they went on the show and that the psychic said that her body was somewhere around the laundromat and that they wanted to go and look at some of these places and see maybe if this psychic was right. But after their search, nothing turned up. There was no evidence of Nikki in any trench. By 2004, Nikki's family came up with another strategy to try and get some new information. They knew that Nikki didn't simply run away, which means someone knows something. So in 2004, the family worked with a missing person organization and raised a $100,000 reward. With this reward, they went on TV and said that for the next 20 days, if anyone comes forward with information about Nikki's disappearance, they would get this $100,000 reward. I think this is a brilliant idea. Number one, $100,000 is a lot of money. That's enough money to get someone with information to come forward and talk. Number two, giving people 20 days to claim this reward creates a sense of urgency for someone to come forward. They know that they have to come forward within the next 20 days if they do have information and they want this reward money. So Nikki's family was really hopeful at this time and point because if this strategy paid off, then they would be hopefully one step closer in finding out what happened to her. After they went on TV and announced the reward, they patiently waited. But as the days ticked by, and finally got to 20 days, they didn't hear anything. Not one single person came forward with any information about Nikki. Not even a $100,000 reward compelled anyone to talk. After 2004, the case went cold again. Three long years passed. Then suddenly, there was a spark in the case. Richmond police got a tip about Tommy Swint. Detectives found out that Tommy no longer worked as a guard at the Correctional Center in Dayton, but was now a police officer with the Trotwood, Ohio Police Department. Detectives in Indiana were completely stunned. How could someone still considered a person of interest in a missing person investigation get hired on as a police officer. Background investigators in charge of hiring new cops 
must have overlooked this, right? Richmond detectives drove out to Trotwood, Ohio, and sat down with their police chief, and they point-blank asked him, did Tommy Swint disclose the fact that he is a major person of interest in our Nikki McCown missing person investigation? The police chief was completely surprised. He never knew anything about the Nikki McCown case or that one of his police officers was considered a person of interest in the investigation. So once they found out about Tommy Swint's past, the Trotwood, Ohio Police Department gives him two options. He can either resign on his own or, number two, the department will terminate him. Tommy ultimately decides to quit, but he decides to quit not without a fight. Immediately after resigning from his position as a police officer, he filed a lawsuit against the city of Trotwood and against the Trotwood Police Department. Shortly after filing the lawsuit, he held a press conference claiming that the Richmond Police Department never told him that he was considered a person of interest in Nikki McCown's disappearance. But the Richmond Police Department fought back. According to their records, they did tell him that he was considered a person of interest. So, Tommy refused to cooperate in their investigation from day one, according to them. And his strange relationship, as well as the proximity of the SUV, made him a prime suspect in Nikki's case. The lawsuit quickly made big headlines in the area. It became a media sensation that a former police officer was considered a person of interest in a missing person investigation. And after that, Tommy Swint's face started to pop up on every newscast and on the front page of every newspaper in the Richmond, Indiana area. Eventually, the story expanded past Richmond and reached the neighboring city of Dayton, Ohio. As soon as the story hit Dayton, the police received an important tip. A caller phoned in to the Dayton Police Department and told investigators they wanted to file an anonymous tip. The tipster said they knew Tommy Swint and that the department should look into him as a possible suspect in another missing person investigation, Tina Ivory. Back on November 17, 1991, Dayton police officers found the body of 33-year-old Tina Marie Ivory. Forest workers discovered her body in a pile of trash on the side of Dayton Liberty Road. Someone had wrapped her partially nude body in a blanket using duct tape, covered her in trash bags, and left her body in the woods. Investigators found her underwear, pants, shoes, and jacket inside the blanket with her. Her killer strangled her to death. Dayton police identified the female victim through fingerprints as Tina Ivory. At the time, back in 1991, investigators recovered four semen stains on the back of Tina's jacket, as well as DNA had been collected from the blanket that she was wrapped in. Now, unfortunately, back in 1991, our DNA testing wasn't as good as it is today. It was essentially useless without a suspect to compare it to. 
So without any suspects in Tina Ivory's case, even though they had the semen samples and they had a partial DNA profile from the blanket, her case went cold. They had the sample, but again, they didn't have a suspect to compare it to. And our DNA testing back in 1991 just wasn't as strong as it is today. So the case ends up going cold for the next 16 long years until until November 2007 when the police got that anonymous tip about Tommy Swint. So with a potential new suspect in mind, the police in Dayton, Ohio, decided to reopen Tina Ivory's case. First, of course, they needed to match Tommy's DNA with the DNA and semen sample recovered on the blanket and on the back of Tina's jacket. But there's still a problem. They don't have Tommy's DNA. And they can't legally force him to turn over his DNA, not without a warrant. And you can't just ask a judge for a warrant based on an anonymous tip. Now, luckily for the Dayton Police Department, another police department had Tommy's DNA. And that was the police back in Richmond, Indiana. During the lawsuit between Tommy Swint, the city of Trotwood, and the Trotwood Police Department, Tommy provided a DNA sample to the Richmond, Indiana Police Department. Why? Well, because the whole reason why Trotwood forced him to resign as a police officer was because he didn't disclose the fact that he was considered a person of interest in Richmond missing persons case, the Nikki McCown case. So when this entire situation came to light, Tommy said not only did Richmond police not tell him that he was a person of interest, but he was completely innocent in Nikki's disappearance. And to prove his innocence, he provided Richmond police with a sample of his DNA. He said that he was more than willing to cooperate with the police. When he provided his DNA to Richmond, he had no idea that he was under the radar for Tina Ivory's murder. So investigators sent the DNA sample to the forensic lab for testing. When the test came back, they got a hit. Tommy Swint's DNA matched both the blanket and two semen spots on her jacket. Even though the DNA matched, Detectives in Dayton felt like they needed more to connect him to Tina Ivory's murder. First, they needed to find out how his DNA got there. And then they needed to put him at the scene. So the forensics team went back and reviewed all the evidence in the case. Maybe there was something else that they could test to link them back to Tommy. And they found their answer the duct tape used to wrap the blanket around Tina Ivory's body. Investigators pulled a full palm print from the duct tape using the latest fingerprint technology. Back in 1991, when Tina's murder happened, they didn't have the technology to compare the palm print. All that was left was to obtain Tommy's fingerprints. Since the police already linked his DNA and semen, they had enough evidence to secure a warrant in order to get his fingerprints. 
So on November 17th, 2009, Dayton police officers traveled to Alabama, where Tommy lived, to get his fingerprints. Initially, he's cooperative. In both cases, he maintained his innocence and didn't put up any fight. While investigators waited for the forensic results, detectives interviewed him and confronted him about the forensic evidence linking him to the Tina Ivory case. They basically tell him that they have DNA and semen evidence linking him to her murder. But still, he remains cool, calm, and collected, and he denied everything. He said he had nothing to do with her murder, and once he started to kind of feel the pressure that investigators were putting down on him, he quickly shut down the interview by asking for an attorney. The forensic examiners compared Tommy's fingerprints to the palm print on the duct tape. Fingerprints are like gold in criminal investigations. No two people have the same fingerprint. Even identical twins with identical DNA have different fingerprints. When comparing fingerprints, the two things examiners will look for are uniqueness and persistence. Since no two people have the same fingerprints, we will first look at the print's uniqueness to make an identification, and then we'll look at persistence. This principle is that a person's fingerprints remain unchanged throughout their life. In other words, even as we age, our fingerprints stay the same. The examiner will look at the print's general pattern type to match a print. Now, the most common patterns are loop, whirl, and arch. The examiner will use these characteristics to identify specific points on a suspect fingerprint with the same information in a known fingerprint. In this case, it's comparing Tommy Swint's fingerprint characteristics to the characteristics in the known fingerprint, the fingerprint recovered on the duct tape. If enough characteristics match or correlate, then we've got a match. The fingerprints are determined to be from the same person. In Tommy Swint's case, examiners found a match. Tommy Swint's palm print was on the duct tape at the Tina Ivory crime scene. On February 3rd, 2010, a grand jury in Dayton indicted Tommy in the Tina Ivory murder case. Word about the indictment got back to detectives in Richmond, Indiana. This indictment turned Tommy Swint from a person of interest to a possible prime suspect in their Nikki McCown investigation. Once the indictment came through, all three police departments were ready to make a move and ready to make an arrest. So you've got the Alabama Police Department where Tommy Swint lived. You've got Dayton, Ohio Police there because the Tina Ivory case was theirs. And then you've got Richmond, Indiana Police who now fully believe that Tommy Swint is their prime suspect in their Nikki McCown case. So at 1 o'clock p.m., the police showed up at Tommy's house, ready to arrest him on first-degree murder charges. But as soon as officers approached the front door, they heard a popping sound, the sound of a gunshot. 
they immediately broke down the front door and saw Tommy Swint on the floor. He had shot and killed himself. It was a gunshot that sent shockwaves all the way back to Richmond, Indiana. Any secrets or knowledge Tommy Swint had about Nikki McCown's disappearance were gone. Richmond detectives were furious. The news about Tommy's suicide was equally devastating to Nikki's family, who by this point were convinced that he was somehow involved in her disappearance. They believe that Tommy Swint became obsessed with Nikki, and when she didn't return the feelings, he grew angry. He was mad that she was marrying another man. So he killed her just like with Tina Marie Ivory. Detective Miller from the Richmond Police Department told the media that he still believes they can solve Nikki McCown's case. Even though their prime suspect is dead, his department believes that someone else knows what happened to Nikki. In his words, quote, I believe there's another person of interest Tommy was close to that had some of the answers, if not all of them, end quote. He went on to say, quote, there's another person. It was a coworker of his that he had a relationship with. And I believe that person probably knows more, end quote. Detective Miller is referring to Tommy Swint's romantic relationship with a coworker at the correctional facility. Tommy was in this romantic relationship at the time of Nikki's disappearance. So the Richmond police believe that maybe some helpful yet incriminating pillow talk was involved. The disappearance of Nikki McCown remains unsolved. What happened to her continues to remain a mystery. Since her disappearance, Bobby Webster, the fiancé, has lost all contact with her family. Nikki's daughter, Peyton, who was only nine years old when her mom disappeared, was raised by Nikki's parents and siblings. She's now an adult with a child of her own. Anyone with information about the disappearance of Nikki McCown is asked to call the Richmond Police Department at 765-983-7247. Someone out there knows something. Someone out there saw something. It just takes one tip or one phone call to finally figure out what happened to Nikki. If you know anything, please help. And personally, I don't know how anyone can sleep at night having that kind of pillow talk. To share your thoughts on the mysterious disappearance of Nikki McCown, be sure to follow the show on Instagram and Facebook. Do you think Tommy Swint had something to do with her disappearance? Or do you have your own theory? To find out what I think about the case, sign up to become a patron at patreon.com slash forensic tales. After each episode, I release a bonus episode where I share my personal thoughts and opinions about the case. This is where I get the opportunity to say what I think really happened to Nikki McCown. To check out photos from the case, be sure to head to our website, ForensicTales.com. Don't forget to subscribe to Forensic Tales so you don't miss an episode. We release a new episode every Monday. 
If you love the show, consider leaving us a positive review or tell friends and family about us. You can also help support the show through Patreon. Thank you so much for joining me this week. Please join me next week. We'll have a brand new case and a brand new story to talk about. Until then, remember, not all stories have happy endings. Forensic Tales is a Rockefeller audio production. The show is written and produced by me, Courtney Fretwell Ariola. For a small monthly contribution, you can help create new compelling cases for the show, help fund research, and assist with production and editing costs. In addition, for supporting the show, you'll become one of the first to listen to new ad-free episodes and snag exclusive show merchandise not available anywhere else. To learn about how you can support the show, head over to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash tales, or simply click the support link in the show notes. You can also support the show by leaving a positive review or spreading the good word about us. Forensic Tales is a podcast made possible by our Patreon producers, Tony A., Nicole L., William R., David B., Sammy, Paula G., Selena C., Nicole G., Christine B., Christina M., and Karen D. If you'd like to become a producer of the show, head over to our Patreon page or send me an email at Courtney at ForensicTales.com to find out how you can become involved. For a complete list of sources used in this episode, please visit ForensicTales.com. Thank you so much for listening. Your support means the world to me. I'll see you next week. Until then, remember, not all stories have happy endings.